to The Writer's Lock, the podcast where we read you very niche Pokemon fan fiction based on the Nuzlocke challenge and chit-chat about the genre. But before I get into that, I want to thank all of you who turned into our pilot episode, and especially those of you who took the time to throw us a comment. Our team worked very hard to put it together, and we learned a lot along the way. So all the positive feedback has been very affirming. It's also been a fun experience that left us eager to do more. On that note, since the pilot came out, we've done some serious planning for the season ahead and worked out some kinks. I can tell you now that the first season will be 11 episodes long, including this one, which will cover the whole of our shortest story, Gracidia. As for the rest, we got so many wonderful submissions, we are determined to get to all of them, which we can't do if we make a full audiobook of every story. So every three episodes we'll be swapping out the stories, giving you a nice sample of the lengthier ones that we hope will leave you hungry for the rest. Also new is a discussion segment where we bring in different people to talk shop about story locks and nuzlocking in general. And finally, we'll be doing short promo segments of the stories that didn't make it into this season, but that you can look forward to hearing more about in the future. With that done, it's time to jump right into the podcast. As before, the first up is Cressidia, an ultra-sun fairy type lock as told by a flabebe named Poppy. This is Silver Doe, reading Gracidea by Lance Sherlock. Chapter 2. Larkspur. Being a trainer's warrior is a curious thing, repeatedly forced in and out of consciousness to fight at a child's command. Tucked away in my capsule there is no pain, but there is also no recollection. No sense of time or space or even self. It is sleep, but we never dream. The world blinks and suddenly we're somewhere we weren't before. Everyone cocks their head at what fairies can accomplish. But human magic will always mystify me. My primary protests are quieted by promises of evolution and greater strength. When I challenge Lola that battling alone will not complete my life cycle, she vows to find the stone I will one day require. Florigis. To unite with the flower we tend to and hold fast. Our weapon our steed, the companion that grants us dust and magic. It is a fate sought by all of my kind, but achieved by few. The hope of ascension is enticing enough for me to yield, and I turn my biting dust on a wild rat. After a time, Lola allows us longer periods of freedom. You and Felix make further attempts at friendship. I'm not the least bit amused. At least you don't try to impress by balancing a ball on your nose. The one I gravitate towards, again, is Trips. He never seeks to boast or make idle of anything. He simply is, educating the others and providing advice when prodded. If only he'd cease trying to better my attitude. One evening, he offers that I make peace with Peaches, as we are compatriots. I tell him that our natural dissonance will not be abandoned in our meadow. The Cottonhead seems to agree. He's taken to calling me Poppycock under his breath. Charming. At mealtimes, our trainer seeks to entertain with stories. My knowledge of human culture grows as she uses phrases such as fairy tales and reading and a book. I can tell you right away, whoever came up with these tales has never met a fairy in their life. Too many princesses and knights. Not enough intricacies on the never-ending quest to survive and gain enlightenment through the guardianship of nature and its children. Lola explains that isn't the point. 
I say they need a new point. All the same, you and Felix and most of the others gather around and lap them up like they only drink to quench an eternal thirst. You especially seem enthralled. Resting on the child's shoulder and staring at the pages with such fixation, you almost fool me to think you can read yourself. Your sincere interest is almost contagious. Almost. I cannot abide this insult to our kind. The sun knows how you do. For days I lose myself in training. Every foe that falls, I brace for the light I hope to follow. When it doesn't shine, I search for another poor soul. I break for food and rest and little else. My impatience gets the best of me, but in my frustration I continue forward, leaving a trail of dust and torn earth in my wake, until finally my efforts bring me success. My evolution is exhilarating. What a surge of energy. What a rush of power. Light and pixie dust envelop me, and I feel my body warp and elongate. My tail grows green and spade-like, and my ears elongate. Sounds are clearer. Sights are more alive. I have elbows and proper hands. My word. I'm now able to grasp my flower by the stem. I'll miss steering with my stamen, but I'm far too large for it to support my weight now. My turn to carry it along. I'm rewarded with a sugary bean from Lola, a treat she passes to us freely, while the others gather to pat me on the back. Felix offers his flippering congratulations, but I'm dubious as to what he expects from me. I hear a whisper from Tribs that I'm supposed to hit it. My compliance serves as a switch to activate a celebratory backflip. What a fool. The final and softest good wishes come from you. Or maybe you offered them before, but they were lost in the flurry of excitement. It's strange seeing you so small now. Size will take the most getting used to, though growth has not improved my appetite. These beans are far too large for me to consume on my own. Here, I understand you prefer the purple ones. It is without reluctance that I admit your company has grown less troublesome. Over the last few days, you've proven yourself capable of conversation and poise. Your buzzing remains to be piercing white noise, but it has grown tolerable. I'm nearly glad to call you my acquaintance. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. You pegging my flower for a meal is still a strike against you. We are still in the process of coming to terms with each other. For the most part, you're not much to figure out. Quiet, kind, albeit annoying, eager to please, a passive soul save for rare occasions. But what I don't comprehend is your newfound fawning over Peaches. Was it because he so gallantly swooped in to rescue you from that vicious spider monster? You've been listening to Lola's stories too much. Listen, I was out of my ball for the whole battle. I witnessed what you missed. After we all had our moment of panic for your safety, Lola sent out Peaches in your stead. And while you were tucked away in your ball, he merely stunned the beast before turning tail and freeing up the battlefield for Tribs to bring it down. Perhaps those details escaped you. They did from our resident Cotney. Remember that the next time he flaunts his bravery. Our trainer may have been caught off guard, but I will grant the child this. She stuck to her strategy, then adapted. Peaches was a part of it. He didn't do it for you, dear. Don't give me that look. It's only for your own good that I'm telling you this. If you insist on chasing after one of our team members, 
Might I suggest someone with sincere convictions? Poe appears a cuddly pink fellow, though he may be too slow for your speed after all. I honestly can't see you with Tribs. Felix is fine if you don't mind his energy and the smell of sea salt. Quartz? I'm unsure if Carbon danced to that tune. Why, Timothy might be a good match for you. Ah yes, Timothy, the new golden boy. And a catalyst for Felix's cheerful antics. Burst from the egg with a song in his heart, playing on a broken record. He tore up the grass like a plow and stained himself green in his efforts to greet everyone. Lola all but crammed those sugary beans down his throat. Something about earning his affection. I told her with his demeanor, it wouldn't take long. Sure enough, his brown fur soon turned to creamy white with carnation pink, and from his mane sprung ribbons that had a life of their own. He took to chasing them in a circle immediately. Another pure simpleton. Indeed, I think the two of you would get along swimmingly. Hmm? Oh, come now. You know very well we don't mature the same as humans. But what do I know? Burn for your cotton trash. Don't say I didn't warn you. When I next materialize, something is amiss. Lola holds her arms and shakes. Felix hugs her leg, helpless. Timothy needs her other side. You rub yourself against her cheek in comfort. The sight is disquieting enough for my suspicions to rise. A premonition strikes my bones. Someone has died. At my request, Tribs, now a Pelipper, takes me aside to explain what happened. Her name was Min. I was unacquainted with her. A dupe hider from Brooklet Hill who met her end in the volcano's shadow. It is unfortunate, but the news leaves little impact on me. Tribs appears the same, or perhaps he's merely bearing his grief for the sake of the others. We'll remain silent for Felix's sake, but I believe there's a quiet understanding of who the true leader is here. I offer you my condolences, but I am surprised when you admit you didn't know her either, that you were in the box, same as me. How is it you feel so saddened by this? No, I'm not insinuating that death is trifle, I'm only... Oh, I see. Yes, go take care of Lola. I'm certain the child needs your company now. Tickle her face with your nose. Make her laugh. You singular thing, you. Away from a familiar world viewed through a Pokemon's eyes to a strange one seen through the eyes of a human. Next is Call of the Divines, a Hakkog Kajinka story lock, a wild ride through a fantasy world with one very confused human named Ethan. Call of the Divines, Chapter 1 After my brief taste of freedom, the jail cell seems much smaller and colder, and darker. All the things I'd tuned out over the week I spent here, the clumping of feet in the courtyard outside as the guards go through their drills, the unintelligible murmurs of the guards talking outside the jail, the faint scent of stale lavender from the bouquet hanging in the ceiling, a medieval air freshener, I assume, refused to be pushed to the back of my mind. My dinner lies on my cot. I couldn't stomach more than a spoonful. Not like I'm going to care about being hungry by tomorrow anyway. They don't let Lyra into the jail, though I briefly see her face through the barred grill on the main door to the cells at one point. No one else comes. It's kind of strange. 
I'd almost started to become accustomed to the, well, brutal nature of this world, through all the tales Lyra, Carlay, and Koga had told me. God knows a lot of the bad guys, and some of the good guys too, in those tales ended up dead. But somehow, even though I knew, thanks to Silver, that there was a death sentence hanging over me, the possibility that I might die here, actually die, had just never occurred to me. From what I've heard, it's dishonorable to fear death, or some shit like that. The divines are the ones who decide who lives and who dies, and if they decide we die, then we should accept their judgment. I don't care. Maybe Carlay or Silver or even Lyra would face execution calmly and without hesitation, but I'm not them. I don't even belong in this world, but it's gonna kill me. And I'm fucking terrified. There's a faint metallic clatter from outside the jail door, and I look up, expecting one of the guards to come and take away my untouched tray. Instead, when the door opens, it's Carly, who slips inside and closes the door behind her. She looks exactly the same as she had when I'd briefly seen her earlier in the day, except now she has a satchel slung over one shoulder. What? I start to say. Quiet, she hisses at me. She stalks across to my cell and begins repeatedly working the keys in the lock, one after another, until she finds one that fits. I stare dumbly at her for an embarrassingly long amount of time before it clicks. Holy shit, I breathe. And then a new thought occurs to me. But why are you doing this? I mean, don't get me wrong, I stammer as she stops messing with the lock for a moment and glares at me. I'm, you have no idea how glad I am that you're doing this, but aren't you, like, heir to the throne? Breaking someone out of your dad's jail seems unairly. I'm sure not going to tell her to her face that I still don't really trust her. She doesn't reply until she finally finds the right key and the lock opens with a loud metallic clunk that has us both flinching at its volume. Because it is the right thing to do, she replies softly. Come on. She slips back out of the jail door to check the coast is clear before opening it for me to come out as well. And then I get another surprise. The two guards that were stationed outside the jail cell are slumped on the floor, unmoving other than slight movements of their breastplates that suggest they are still breathing. You knocked them out? I yelp, barely managing to stop myself from shouting. How did you think I got in? She asks, hooking her hands under the shoulders of one of the unconscious guards and starting to drag him into the jail. You bring that one, she adds, nodding to the other guard. I can't help feeling reluctant. The way Carlay just drags the first guard in and talks about them, like knocking them out is no big deal, makes it sound like she sees them as nothing more than heavy weights. Maybe she does, but I can't just conveniently forget that they're people. And that's not the only reason for my reluctance. As much as I know that Carlay, right now, is my best chance at survival, the idea of breaking the law, even if it's the law of this mad, deadly world, is one that makes me hesitate. About the worst thing I've done before now is cheat on my then-girlfriend. Becoming a criminal isn't a step I can just idly take without thinking about it. I hear the scraping of metal on stone from behind me stop, and I don't need to look around to know that Carly's glaring at me. She mutters something I don't hear, but it's probably not complimentary. With a muttered apology to the unconscious man, or maybe woman, it's kind of hard to tell through the armor, I grab the other guard by one wrist and start dragging them in after Carly. It's slow going. I'm not particularly unfit, but these guys are uniformly pretty bulky, and their armor and shit probably adds 70 pounds on top of that. I thought, I groaned, you told them you'd, I don't know, seen someone suspicious in the gardens or something. By the time I get to the door to the jail, she's managed to already dump her guard in the cell that she just let me out of, 
and she pauses as she comes back and bends down to help me maneuver my guard through the door. I did not think of that option, she admits. Though if I had done so, she adds defensively once the two guards are piled in the cell, they would have known I was involved in freeing you the moment they returned to find you gone. She lets me go out of the cell first before closing and locking the door. Uh, you just knocked them out, I point out as we leave the jail and Carly locks the jail door as well. Aren't they going to know you're involved anyway? A blessed with the element of surprise is always going to defeat two humans, she answered. No matter how well trained the humans, they never saw me coming. She makes it sound like it's no big deal, but when she looks back to me, I can see a faint smirk on her face for a moment before she grows serious again. We're heading for a passage that leads underneath the palace and out, she explains. It was designed so the Imperial family could flee the palace if it was ever attacked and looked likely to fall. The gods don't know about it. Almost no one does. Commander Bruno showed it to me after... She pauses. Never mind. The point is, unless you know about the passage, no one would ever expect someone fleeing the palace to go deeper in. The gods will be blocking the main ways in and out of the palace, but this tunnel goes beyond them all. Okay, I agree. But if Bruno knows about the passage, won't he know you're coming this way? Carly grins, almost mischievously, before quickly pulling me aside as two servants pass through an intersection ahead of us. Only if he knows I'm responsible, she answers, once she deems it safe to move on. I can't help but be impressed at how well thought out this jailbreak is, considering she's probably only had a few hours to think of it. Then again, maybe she had a little help. What about Lyra? I ask, a few seconds later. Carly looks back to me. She isn't coming with us. My disappointment must show in my face, because Carly pauses for a moment, stepping back into one of the doorways so we can stop to talk without risking being seen. While I'm sure you would feel happier if she accompanied us, it's safer this way, for her. I'm the heir to the throne. Lyra doesn't have that protection. If she was caught doing this, father would have her killed. It still freaks me out how easily people in this world talk about death. Before I can answer, a gonging sound rings through the corridors. Damnation, Carly swears, making a strange motion with one hand, a kind of upwards-pushing movement that I don't understand the meaning of. I'm guessing that's not good? I ask tentatively. The warning bell, Carly nods. Someone must have noticed that the gods were not at their posts and looked inside the jail. We should move quickly. You hold this. She shrugs the satchel she's been carrying off her shoulders and gives it to me. It takes me a moment to figure out why she wants me to carry it instead of her, so it won't get in the way if she has to fight. Thankfully, Carly's right. Though we have to duck aside from guards running through the halls, they obviously expect their fugitives to be making a break for the main entrance to the palace because they don't pause to look for us. There's only one scary moment where we all but literally run into a pair of guards who obviously know that I'm not supposed to be out of jail because they start drawing their swords until they notice Carly besides me and pause for a moment in confusion. That moment is all Carly needs. She more pounces than anything else, tackling one of the guards to the floor and landing a blow on his neck, unprotected between his helmet and breastplate, before rolling to her feet and stepping behind the second guard, wrapping one arm around his neck and choking him out. She takes an elbow to the stomach, but it doesn't seem to bother her, and when the second guard stops struggling and goes limp, she's barely even out of breath. The whole thing probably takes about five seconds, and she immediately steps over their prone bodies and grabs me by the wrist, tugging me along as if nothing had happened. I dread to think what she's capable of if she's actually trying to hurt someone. Here, yeah, she says a couple of minutes later. We're in a part of the palace that looks like it doesn't even get dusted frequently, much less visited. Elsewhere in the palace, there are lanterns and candles regularly lit and topped up by servants, but there's none of that here. There's barely even enough light to see by. 
Part of me can't help but feel curious about the abandoned wing, but somehow I don't think Carlay is going to let me play tourist and ask questions. She runs her hand along the paneling of one wall, and after a few moments there's a click and the bottom segment of the wall swings inwards, revealing a dark passage. There's a drop down to the tunnel, she warns me, before sitting down at the lip of the entry into the passage, legs dangling over the edge and pushing off, vanishing from sight. A moment later, her voice floats back up to me. Come on. I peer down into the passage, but I can barely see anything down there. Lucky I'm not scared of the dark. I follow what Carlay did, sitting down over the edge and letting myself slide off into the darkness. My guess at the depth of the drop is way off, and in the darkness I can't see the floor of the tunnel coming up on me until my feet suddenly slam into it. I land awkwardly and cry out as my left leg gives out under me. Light illuminates the tunnel a moment later, and I see a small flame burning in Carlay's hand. Can you stand? She asks. I can, but only by leaning against the tunnel wall. My leg won't take any weight. I'm pretty sure I've twisted my ankle or something. Carlay watches me struggling for a moment before stepping past me, picking up a long pole that must be left there for this exact purpose, and using it to push the door to the secret passage above us shut again. Aren't you going to burn up all our air? I ask after a moment, as Carlay scowls at me, as if my injury is my fault. Somehow, I'm not surprised that she made the same jump effortlessly and unharmed, and I can't help but feel a little frustrated. Sure, she's blessed and all that shit, but I hate feeling completely useless next to her. I doubt it, she replies. But if it worries you, she turns and throws the fire she's holding like it's a baseball. It fizzles out after a short distance once it leaves her hand, but there's still light in the tunnel. Small stones set in the walls, floor, and ceiling that seem to have somehow stored the light. It's a rather picturesque sight though Carlay doesn't give me much time to take it in. We should keep moving, she declares. For a moment, I think she's going to make me hobble along behind her and scold me for being slow. She is a princess, after all. But then she steps up next to me and lets me lean on her for support, putting my arm around her shoulders. Thanks, I mutter quietly as we set off down the tunnel. After everything I've done to ensure your freedom, she replies, I'm hardly going to leave you behind now. The way she says it doesn't entirely reassure me, like she's only helping me now out of sheer stubbornness. Then again, I don't really understand why she helped me in the first place, and I'm sure not going to complain. As we travel under the palace, we can hear people running to and fro above us occasionally, and muffled voices shouting unintelligibly. I worry each time the voices get louder, scared that we've somehow been detected. Carlay's more confident in the secrecy of our tunnel than I am, though, and keeps pulling on me every time I pause to listen. Then I start to hear sounds that definitely aren't from above. How many people did you say knew about this tunnel again? I asked Carlay nervously. Very few, Carlay answers, but she's tenser than she has been when we've heard the other sounds. Commander Bruno, my father, likely Lord Koga, and... Carlay, what in the hells are you doing? Silva, Carlay finishes, as we look back to see the red-headed teenager standing in the tunnel behind us. Wait or leave us on a cliffhanger, but that's all part of the fun. Speaking of which, it's time for our first discussion segment. G'day, I'm your host Rainy. I'm a long-time member of the Nuzlocke community and I've been writing for over 15 years. Joined with me today is Flop, our producer, and Herb, one of our fellow readers. Our discussion segment today is going to be on story locks and what makes them so fun and interesting to us. You guys want to say hello? Yeah, g'day. How's it going? It's me again. I'm going to spend the whole of this recording being as like aggressively Australian as possible, so let's just get used to it now. 
I'll be the posh Australian. Does that make me the token American? <laughs> yes, it does. All right, yeah, so I'm Herb, also known as Erberor. Uh, you probably heard, yeah, you heard, you heard me last time hosting. All right, uh, let's quickly just go over what a story lock is. Uh, as we covered in our previous episode, a Nuzlocke is a set of rules applied when playing any of the core Pokemon games. These include catching only one Pokemon per new area and ca- counting your Pokemon as dead when it faints. Many people have taken their experiences and adapted them into comics, videos, and of course, stories. To help distinguish the various sorts of series from one another, we like to call any written runs story locks. For our main discussion point then, uh, story locks are a great place for writers to experiment with form and genre. So what are some really interesting ways that you two have seen story locks presented and which ones have really interested you? Flop, let's start with you. So I've been hanging around the whole place since about 2016 and I've sort of seen broadly, so we've got like format differences, protagonist differences. So protagonist differences is mostly provided like along the lines of are we following a trainer? Are we following a Pokemon who's in a world with trainers or are we forming a Pokemon in a trainerless world such as Pokemon Mystery Dungeon then we have format which I think is probably more important than genre uh, format can take the form of a straight piece of narrative prose like your standard serialized like chapter format thing but we've also seen older and some current runs uh, which I might pivot to Irv here in a second current runs in an epistolary or letter based or journal format which have been very interesting as well very rarely, we also get uh, storylocks with accompanying illustrations, and I quite appreciate those, and I really appreciate people who put in the effort. But for the moment, I think it's probably a great idea to hear a little more about your epistolary slash journal formats from Herb. So take it away, mate. Yeah, so um, right now, my main project is All That We Are, which is working in a journal format, which I've just found to be a really interesting way to approach it. Um, and I mean, that, that that's interesting just from like a broader writing perspective, but I think that with story locks there's it yeah one of the great things is that you can really go in a lot of different directions with how you present it and how it is i mean i've i've toyed with illustration before too with varied success but it's always been really fun and just there's so much room to explore as like a creator and as a storyteller there's you can go almost anywhere you want and i mean just like with journaling i've never done I've never written in a journal format before this project, before All That We Are, and I think it's come together really well, and I've learned a lot about writing from that perspective. You never had a diary when you were younger? I mean, I've got my journal like on my desk in front of me, but I've never really kept a consistent journal. And writing from a, a character's perspective as well was always quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I was always writing in third person before, you know, always, yeah, usually third person kind of removed from things, usually like following someone, but really getting into the head of the character was fun. Mm, that can be pretty difficult. Um, I think I've actually got a similar background to yours. Um, my first run, I did um, illustrations for it, just just little like banners for each each chapter. Yeah, and then I started on Unplanned Adventures. I'm not sure if either of you, you two have, have read that. Um, but yeah, I had diary entries in that as well. Yeah, I remember I, I uh, quite enjoyed that, and that reminds me of a format that we haven't mentioned, sort of pseudo-multimedia format. Yeah, um, the multimedia ones, we haven't seen that many of them, but I, I think that they're pretty popular whenever they pop up. Yeah, I think they're probably the two biggest examples of the past couple of years would be Xeno, Letters from Hoenn, and then Chess. Mm. We've also seen runs where um, it's been text messages between the characters, um, or like a, like a chat program, that sort of thing. That was that was um, what drew me in. There's actually a really exciting new story lot going around at the moment that I've been meaning to check out. 
uh, by a user called Whipbot. I say that because I can't remember the exact name of the story lock, but it presented the Nuzlocke rule set in the style of uh, Homestuck chat locks, which I always thought was a really, really cool, really kind of, I don't know, I don't know, Homestuck, but at the same time, it was a really compelling way to present something, especially something that's like a fairly modern setting. The run that actually drew me to the forums, which my partner did, was written in that same format as well, so I've sort of come to become really fond of it. I did want to want to mention, uh, just off the top of my head, I think I remember Girl and Carp was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was like, it's like done as video logs, like transcripts of video logs. That's what I remember from it. Yep. Yep. That's what I remember as well. There was a question I wanted to uh, pitch you about on um, the journal style of runs, actually. Uh, so, and I'm sorry, this comes from a place of having not read that much of all that we are, but how do you deal with perpetually reporting all the action as like reporting entirely after the action or when it's about to occur like how do you feel that you deal with that while still preserving tension oh yeah so that's that's been the a real challenge is like you know like like i don't know in in the chapters where like someone dies like i've always had this problem of like how do i present this knowing that because the character because valna is you know she knows what happened and she's really a mess about it usually naturally yeah yeah the tension would come through at the start of the actual diary entry wouldn't it yeah that that is one thing that i that i do try to do is i try and get that tension in there from the start generally when i go into something i try to keep in mind how things went during that day of the story and try and frame especially the start of it to get that mood across and I mean, there was one time where I said, you know, I had Vona like go on about how uh, just just awful mood that she was in, and then just outright say in the first couple of paragraphs that someone died. Jesus, yeah, that's fair. So she's really using it as a venting space. Yeah, taking it and using it as a venting space is is a big thing that I try to do, and I, you know, just in general. I, I try to use it as a space for her to think things out, and so I try to follow that thought process that she has in working through emotions, working through what happened, which often leads to little asides in the middle of things and actions. So there's, yeah, there's a certain amount of tension that just ends up being broken up by the thought, by the thinking, because that's what I want to really get in there, is to get into the head and the thought process over the action of what's going on. Though that hasn't stopped me from writing big elaborate fight scenes because I have a history of doing that in my in in other writing projects. I was thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that'd be one of the big drawbacks. Like I know there are a few people on the forums who absolutely hate writing battles. Sorry, Gar. <laughs> and I love like I love the way that you can watch them try and get around writing battles or representing them differently. And I had it in my head that if you've chosen this journal format, perhaps you didn't enjoy writing them. But it's kind of nice to know that, yeah, you just still... Dear Diary, today we kick some fucking ass. Which I believe actually happens a fair bit in the Dear Diary as well, which I quite appreciate. Um, how about we move on to genre? Most Nuzlocke um, seem to follow the adventure genre, so have we seen anything else um, that covers any other genres? Yeah, I can think of, uh, off the top of my head, the two other primary genres that I see... Well, no, three, now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, three primary other genres I see represented through the Nuzlocke format are sci-fi, fantasy, and romance. Oh, romance. <laughs> uh, and there's always, there's always comedy as well. Yeah, yeah, good comedy. 
I was going to say, I can't think off the top of my head an example of a run that's pure comedy at the moment. So what are you guys thinking of? Hmm. Well, I'd say, um, oh, I hate bringing up my own work, but Unplanned Adventures was definitely focused on being a comedy first and foremost. Because all the characters have all, have all their own quirks and issues. Um, so there was a character that thinks that she's an actual magical girl and she writes she writes her own fan fiction about herself as a self-insert magical girl. And it's it's a very sort of meta sort of thing. And it's, yeah, if you look at it from that meta perspective, I think it's really funny for especially Nuzlocke writers because she has, she actually talks about her work with her, you know, with her editor. <laughs> and, and she gets angry at people, you know, like, not reading her work and giving her bad critique and, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a play on the Nuzlocke community. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like it's less perhaps making fun of people who are out there, but then more making fun of the feelings that we all experience. Yeah, I wanted to make it relatable, first and foremost. I think um, comedy, what makes things funny is you can actually relate to things. Yeah, I agree. That's a really great way to look at it. I'm just, I'm actually scanning through written story runs now just to see what we've got. Oh, there's Jenga, which I haven't, I unfortunately haven't checked out yet. Sorry, Bowser. Still crying about Ashes to Ashes. I've heard that's pretty funny. Otherwise, Don't Fear the Reaper, which I believe did well. Oh, we've actually got a comedy tag. Oh, we have tags now. Yeah, yeah, there are tags in the forums, which are really handy, and I should use them more. That's a good tip for all our listeners out there. Yeah, use the tags. Use the tags, use the forum filters. Go for it. That's so interesting. Um, So usually what I'm seeing here is that comedy gets a bit more coverage in comics and screenshot runs, which is... Yeah, that's true. It's a lot, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to convey comedy in a illustrated format. Yeah, or riffing on a screenshot. I'm seeing that we've also got uh, Don't Fear the Reaper at the moment, which I believe did well at this year's Ganta. But yeah, that's fantastic that there's some representation of the genre out there. Now, if we wanted to list off sci-fi and fantasy, I think they're actually a bit harder to find. I'm not sure a lot of the runs that I'm thinking of fully utilize the tag system yet, but they're definitely out there. Hmm. Yeah, um, fantasy, wow, we, I seem to, I think we see that more in comics. People go for the fantasy route, route especially with um, Gajinka comics. Yes. Yep. The uh, story look. Yeah, the story look fantasies I'm thinking of are definitely Gajinka logs as well. Like the big example being the wonderful Call of the Divines that we've heard a bit of on this podcast so far. Like Call of the Divines. I'm looking at it right now. High fantasy tag. I mean, I I work in fantasy, and I'm trying to think about anything else. Oh, there's Wild Card, which I've been really loving as well. Although I suppose we're uh, eating up a little time just naming and piling on these uh, examples of runs we love. Oh, um, Sturmundrang, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. That's a really interesting one where they kind of kind of throw throw a Pokemon idea out the window, and it's just it's people that have magic. Ah, oh, fantastic! That that's the approach that Wildcard takes as well. So there we are, bringing it all back together. Do we have any sci-fi? From what I can think of offhand, one big sci-fi realm that did the runs was won by Astro Death, and I believe it was called Terraform. And it was one of those one of those really out there story locks where it's quite abstract, and you sort of had to guess at the like gameplay events and like catches and stuff being conveyed, and that was part of the fun of reading it, which I thought was an excellent way to depict it. Uh, there's also Okay, looking at the sci-fi tag real quickly, look at the tag system. There's also Electric Sheep, which is probably absolute giant of the genre. It's an absolute giant of a story. <laughs> I'm still trying to catch up on it. 
Um, how about we move on? So uh, let's talk about traditional story locks. Um, we've seen a lot of story locks with non-traditional protagonists and settings, um, but let's just go over what we each think that a traditional story lock is. Like when I think traditional, I mean not. I I think you know it's it's a story, uh, you know, young kid going out venturing, kind of like the structure that it is in the game where you go out and it's just you know there's a certain amount of lightheartedness. It's not super dark. And it just, you know, it follows the trainer and they've got their Pokemon and they're just going along fighting gyms. Like, it's just, there's a really strong appeal to that, I think, because it just, I don't know, it warms my heart when I see it. You know what you're getting, which I think is quite nice as well in its own way. Like, probably one of the fundamental appeals of fan fiction is just seeing how people take familiar concepts and put their own spin on it. And they, it like, the traditional... Story lock is one of those really, really effective ways of getting exactly what you want. Well, when I think about traditional story locks, I basically think of the the Pokemon anime and following that sort of format where it's uh, you set off on the journey and you get a lot of side events, but the main focus will always be on earning the gym badge and raising raising your team up. Basically, it's sort of like a coming of age story. That's probably what the very basis of a Pokemon journey story is. Yeah, we had a discussion prior to this and it got me thinking about what the, like, archetypal nuzlocke protagonist would be and they're definitely like a character who's in there like a teenager or a young adult yeah mid-late teens quite snarky usually it seems to be a characteristic of them and they mature as the story goes on as you say yeah they come across many difficulties they learn new from new situations gain experience um, by interacting with their team and the world around them yep they learn the dynamics they learn about interpersonal relationships whether that's between their like trans rivals or like the management of their team Mm, might be a little bit of romance (laughs) and then and then they they casually learn about death in there somewhere too yeah there's always there's always got to be that moment where there's someone dies and they have to go through a like a complete life-changing experience from it yeah oh i kind of love it i want to if i could just get on my podium here for a second and talk about that probably one of the biggest like biggest identifying moments of a nuzlocke genre or a nuzlocke story specifically is the first death it's become such a hallmark that like the idea is played with it's subverted it's taken straight that moment where like the character their first team member dies and classically what happens is they kind of just go into almost a dissociative a shock state or they give up they run off and they try to release the rest of their team they want to give up it's it's so good like i actually i really enjoy it because they inevitably get talked back into things by their team or by someone close to them and then they go forward into the story like recommitted the team's stronger it's fantastic yeah, the way that a, a character recovers and rises above what happened to them. That's always exciting. I know it's trope to the point of cliche, but I feel like it's gotten that way for a reason. It's also just really good, solid, fundamental storytelling. Mm. And not every character handles it the same way either. That's one of the best parts about it, because every writer will have their own version of what they think rising above a situation means. Yeah, that's fantastic. I really like it. Especially because um, it's a great way to introduce conflict into the story. And some, like, quote-unquote traditional, uh, like, Nuzlocke fanfictions can have an issue with finding that conflict, especially when they've sort of got a character on a journey without a strong sense of purpose. After that, it becomes, let's not make the fallen team members sacrifice in vain, or let's avenge them, or they would want us to keep going. And I think that's just, it's good. It adds something really vital and essential to the story. 
Well, how about non-traditional protagonists then, or, or non-traditional settings? I mean, I was reflecting recently that i mean i i keep finding myself attracted to stories where everything has gone has just collapsed like the post-apocalypse stories everywhere i can find them i was thinking about one of those earlier um there was one where the basically the pokemon were just normal everyday human beings and they were in an apocalyptic setting i think the protagonists might have actually died during the first few chapters and they were replaced by the next character wow do you have a name for that one because that sounds wild no i can't remember it unfortunately it was quite a few years ago yeah the one of the first story locks that i read the one that made me start writing my own uh like four or five years ago was you know this post-apocalypse run and i it fascinated me i have never been able to find it again but seeing what could be done with the setting was something that just fascinated me. Like what, you know, taking these things with the Pokemon and what's going on and turning it, you know, kind of turning it on its head and t going at it with it with a new interpretation, I find to be just amazing. And I mean, I'm a world building nut, so. Yeah, same here. I, I'm sort of definitely on the like, oh, characters are nice end of the world building spectrum. But I have to say that it is really wonderful to see these elements push to like the extremes that the author sees fit to push them to. So you kind of just distill settings down to their barest essentials through stuff like post-apocalyptic setting. Uh, for non-traditional protagonists, we often see, well, I, I guess we're going back to Kajinka again, because I think that they would sort of be classed as a non-traditional protagonist. Ah, uh, I would kind of contend that they're not necessarily. Well, it, dep it really depends on how they're portrayed. Yeah, I was going to say, in a Gajinka story, I would expect to see the Gajinka representing the trainer starter as a protagonist or the, like, human trainer character themselves. What I've found is that I see in comics sometimes there are human trainer characters that assume the role of coach, but I can't actually think of a story log that's gone with this idea. Yeah, I'd actually say that that concept, I would say that's part of a non-traditional protagonist, because in the traditional, in a traditional protagonist or just story lock, actually commanding your Pokemon and, and having, you know, capturing them isn't actually talked about. It's just a given in the world. And the ethics of that is never really brought up. Unless it's a Unova story. Hmm. Um, we've also seen pr protagonists that are older than normal. It's my time, guys. It's my time. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we had um, moments of like, oh, my run is relevant to this. And in this case, my story looks actually quite relevant to this. So in terms of protagonists that are probably over the default age, I think that, like the default age here being assumed to be yeah, mid-teens, I think it's really interesting to play with that in settings where the character, like where the default age remains, but the character is older or slightly younger. I know there are story books out there that do that. I know there are comics that do that. Uh, are you thinking of mine? <laughs> I, I was actually. Boundary X Break is sort of in the back of my mind as well, but I primarily was thinking, yeah, it's my time. It's time to mention trainer watching because I've got actually two characters in that who are in their early 20s and they're still taking on this yeah they're still taking on this challenge that's ostensibly for children and what's <laughs> what's happening as they're starting to go on to the challenge is that they're being treated they're going to be um treated differently they're going to be like they're being held to different standards and it's starting to mean something different to them and i think through doing that 
this this opportunity to really explore like dig into the themes of the game and just into like the ideas that pin together like all the preconceptions that pin together something like this so i think it's really exciting when people are able to take these protagonists that are of an atypical age what i'm thinking of mm, what i'm thinking about is i can't really think of any stories that are current that have a character that's younger than expected oh no we don't really see that do we no i believe pillowcase used to write something along those lines but i also think the protagonist may have been a ghost question mark so age is probably a little more of an abstract concept there but thinking about yeah just this idea of a world that's equipped to serve this particular age range and if your character falls outside of that it's quite different so for a younger character the world i think what could be interesting there is that the world's going to be a place that's more savage than what what they necessarily are ready to deal with or equipped to believe like it's that classic idea of like here let's send out a 10 year old and they can go capture god capture giant monsters and get into life endangering situations that no parent would ever want their child to be in Uh, you know take down crime syndicates and all that yeah, I think there's definitely an opportunity out there if someone wants to write that story of a character who, hang on, I'm pretty sure Ashes to Ashes actually traffics in that. I believe that Ashley, the protagonist, is quite young. She's in the 10 to 11 range, if I'm thinking right. But don't quote me on that. Don't quote me on that one. I'm sorry in advance to Bowser if I've got it wrong. But that that's actually um this character who's in a setting that has a lot of continuity with the actual anime but they're dealing with this world that's in this state of just hardship and decay and it's very interesting so i guess yeah that that needs being met let's go catch up on ashes to ashes sometime i think when i think about this community and about you know the writing and the stories it one of the things that fascinate that does fascinate me so much is that there's so many there's so much variety yeah it can be anything that you want it to be and that's one of the amazing things you can take this journey and make it into something of your own be that a story that's traditional that warms the heart or something dark or something wild and out there and that room to explore is one of those things that just makes me love being here and writing yeah i'm really hoping that in the future we'll be able to see even more experiments in in fiction and seeing how the Pokemon genre, you know, in general, is taken into a new directions. Yeah, if I had to say one thing to tie it off, I would say if you guys are just sitting here listening to this right now and you've got a story idea that you're thinking about starting, go for it. Just absolutely go for it. Get it out there. You'll, you'll see feedback. You'll be able to test it against a whole bunch of different things. Once it's out there, it'll be fantastic. I guarantee you. You'll have a ball. Get started. Yeah, always experiment with your writing. Don't, you know, don't feel afraid, you know, to put things out there. The Nuzlocke community is very supportive. We'd love to have you. We've got a lot more to cover in future episodes as well. So stay tuned for those. Thank you very much, Flop and Herb, for joining me today. Cheers. No wackers. It's my pleasure. So long, everyone. <laughs> Bye. See yous.
Now for our final story lock, Solstice. A gates to infinity dungeon lock chronicling the adventures of Elaine, a human transformed into a tepig saviour, and her guide, a very surly Oshawott. Solstice Chapter 2 They Fight Like Beasts Here we are. Katrin came to a stop and stood up on his haunches and Elaine joined him at the forest's edge. It was so dark she could hardly see a thing, but since Pokemon had good night vision, she trusted Katrin to at least guide her through the forest without bumping into any trees. She did bump into trees, two in fact, but she wasn't going to be mad about it. Out of the woods, she could at least see a little better. There was a dirt road ahead, and a bridge further in the distance. But the real thing that drew her attention was the looming mountain. In the night, it was black as a shadow, and it made Elaine's heart thump. You could see mountains far in the distance on the Castellia rooftops, but she'd never been so close to one. Ragged Mountain, Ketrin said. The caves are known to become mystery dungeons spontaneously, I didn't hear any reports of it before I came to this region. It should be safe. A mystery what? Elaine asked. I'll explain later. Elaine winced at the snap in his tone, and he looked down apologetically and lowered his ears. Uh, I mean, I apologize for my tone, Savior. Uh, a mystery dungeon is... It's all right. You can tell me later, Elaine said. So, the bandits are up there? She lifted a hoof and gestured to the mountain. Should be. It certainly sounded like they were here from that howl. Katrin lowered himself onto all fours and pulled his hood over his forehead. His big circular ears poked out from two slits in the hood, and Elaine's heart skipped a beat. Okay, no matter how rude this Oshawott could be, that was adorable. We need to be careful here. There's no cover at the mountain's base. They can spot us and lay in ambush. Elaine grit her teeth and gulped. She was not in the mood to be ambushed by crazy Pokemon today. Especially since she was a lot smaller than she was used to. If a Pokemon could kill her easy as a human, she didn't want to imagine what they could do to a little patchy Tepig. So then, what do we do? Stay close to me. Katrin slunk out of the bushes like a purloin and crept along the edge of the underbrush. Elaine followed him, though she didn't feel nearly as stealthy. Katrin was sleek and thin, but her new body was clunky and pudgy, and she scraped against the underbrush and snapped every twig underfoot. Er, under hoof? At one point, Katrin shot a glare back at her. A little quieter, if you will, he hissed. It's not exactly easy being a Tepig, Elaine huffed back. They neared the base of the mountain, and the ground began to slope upwards. The trees fell behind them, and Elaine felt only rock and dead grass underfoot as they crept uphill. As she followed Katrin, 
Elaine used the height to get a better look around. The world was made of silhouettes. Everything from the trees to the mountains to the river below was nothing more than a black shadow under a purplish night. The sky itself was the color of a bruise, with just a few flickering stars and the black sphere of a moon. Sadness passed through Elaine, looking at it all. Nights in Castelia City were bright and beautiful. Yeah, scientists were in a huge tizzy over light pollution, but you didn't need stars when the city lights breathed life into the night. The street lamps and yellow windows and bright blue billboards were like spirits coming out to play. You never had to be scared of the dark. But here, there were no spirits. It felt like the sun had gone down and the world had died. No breath. She really needed to stop letting her mind wander and freak herself out. Elaine gulped, and her lip quivered. Hey, Katrin? Here. Katrin's whisper cut her off. She looked up to realize they'd come to a gaping, dark hole in the mountainside. Elaine had figured the mountain was as black as black could get, but turns out it could get darker. Good. Cool. Katrin sniffed at the air, and his tail swished. I smell them in here. Elaine sniffed, but all she could smell was dead grass and dew. Good to know her chunky, tepid body didn't come with heightened Pokemon senses. Lovely. So, what's the plan? We go in, shoot some water, and done? Katrin narrowed his eyes at her, like he couldn't tell if she was making fun of him or not. Elaine wasn't, but she didn't mind him thinking otherwise. I'd prefer not to get killed, Savior. If anything, it'd be ideal if we weren't spotted. Sneak in, sneak out. But they'll probably smell us before we get that far. So what do you want me to do? Dress in drag and do the hula? Katrin blinked at her. Is that... Code? Elaine broke into a fit of giggles, and his face heated up as he smacked at her with his paw. Savior, please focus! I think the best plan is if I go first and distract them. I hate to ask this of you, but can you grab my parcel while I have their attention? Elaine's eyes widened. What? Dude, I don't know. I'm not used to this body yet, and they've got a dog in there, and... Savior, please, I need you to help me. If I don't get that parcel back... Katrin's voice trailed off. He curled his claws in and grimaced. Elaine wanted to keep arguing, but the look on Katrin's face... Uh, just how important was this parcel? She could feel an iron ball of anxiety sitting in her chest, but she swallowed it. Fine, fine. I'll follow your lead, okay? Katrin's eyes sparkled with gratitude. Oh, thank you so much, Savior! You really are as selfless as the great prophetess foretold! Elaine 
shifted her weight, not really sure what to make of that, but Katrin didn't notice her discomfort. We'll need to disguise your scent. So, here. He grabbed his cloak with his paws and, after a moment of hesitation, pulled the hood over his head and dropped it on Elaine's back. It landed with a thump and fell over her eyes. She had to buck her head just to get the hood out of her face. You're giving me your cloak? But I don't want to get it dirty! Keeping you safe is more important, Savior, he said, though his voice wasn't very convincing. He stared at his cloak like he'd given Elaine his baby to hold. Just be careful with it, okay? I can't get another one. With a hoof, Elaine nosed her way into the hood. Her Dumbo ears barely fit in it, but at least it'd stay. I will. I promise. Thank you, Savior. Now, follow me. My parcel is in the brown cloth bag. You'll know it when you see it. On all fours, Katrin slunk into the cave, and Elaine followed. The caverns of Ragged Mountain were as pitch black as the world outside. The rock was slick underfoot, and Elaine could feel drip drops plunking her back through the cloak. It was heavy over her body, like the lead blankets the doctors put over you during x-rays, but the material just felt like thick velvety cloth. Being in the cave was like journeying through the belly of a whale lord. If she squinted hard at the gray ceiling, the cracks and curves in the rock looked like a giant ribcage. Not a mystery dungeon. Good, Katrin whispered. They padded a few more feet, and then he stopped and lifted his tail. Up ahead! Do you hear? Elaine, up to this point, hadn't heard anything over the sloshing of their footsteps through the puddles. But now... She shifted her ears, she could move her ears now, she wasn't sure whether she liked that or despised it, and listened. She heard it up ahead, just barely, the faint sound of voices. Katrin glanced at her and gestured forward with a nod, and they continued on. Growing closer, there were three distinct voices echoing off the rock. One deep and gruff, one high and shrieking, one nasally and whining. A flickering orange light appeared up ahead, the first light Elaine had seen since coming to this world, and she breathed it in like a fresh breath of ocean air. They came to a bend in the tunnel. Elaine and Katrin ducked behind a stalactite and as quietly as possible, peered out into the clearing. Three Pokémon were huddled close together in a circle of stalactites. Elaine spotted a Golbat with a missing fang and a scar over its cheek. A Mistrevis in some sort of black cloak. How was it wearing a cloak? It was a ghost type. And Elaine's heart jerked when she spotted the mighty Yenna. Its muzzle was mangled with faded scars and bare of fur. 
and one of its fangs had been replaced with a wiggly gray rock. She started to sweat, but Katrin brushed her gently with his tail and gestured out into the clearing with a nod. And Elaine spotted it. The Golbat was perched on a brown cloth bag. The parcel! Elaine took a few deep breaths. It'd be fine. It was just a dog. Just a dog. Katrin nodded to her, and she gave a shaky nod back. Taking a deep breath, he sprang out into the open. Hey, you three! The bandits looked up in surprise, and then their lips curled into devious grins. Well, well, if it isn't the little church boy, cooed Mistrivis. Took you long enough, <laughs> Golbat squawked. Elaine could see Katrin was trembling, just slightly, but he grit his teeth and held his ground. He stalked forward on all fours. The mighty Yenna grabbed hold of the parcel with its claws and slid it further back into the cave and the three bandits stalked forward to meet Katrin. So, decided to come, little church boy? I thought you'd at least have the sense to know when you'd been beaten. I was gonna let you go without no blood. But if the ratata walks itself into the Ninetales' mouth, who am I to refuse? Its voice was deep as the rock, and funneled through Elaine's chest. Katrin stalked around the trio of bandits in a circle, and they turned to keep him in sight. It just looked like drama to Elaine at first, but then she realized he was turning them away from her. She took another deep breath, and once they were turned away enough, she snuck along the stone wall of the cave towards the bag. You thieves should know that stealing from a Pokemon of the church is a violation of the third verse of the solar texts. Such a crime can bring, bring the sun's wrath unto you. His words started as a confident growl, but his voice wavered halfway through. When the mighty Yenna barked a guffaw, Elaine nearly leaped out of her skin, but she continued to sneak. <laughs> the sun's wrath. What bloody sun is gonna touch us, you big-nosed fool? Katrin grimaced. His eyes, strong as iron just a few seconds ago, now looked weak and vulnerable. When it returns... Idiot! The mighty Yenna swiped its claws so fast that all Elaine saw was a blur and Katrin was on the ground in a second. He cried out, and his body tightened as he clutched his cheek. Elaine's heart nearly leapt right up her throat. Her friends had gotten into fights before, but never her. Her mom would kill her if she ever got suspended. Should she intervene? Stick to the plan? Oh, dragon, what should she do? But Katrin swished his tail, pointing her on, and she knew she had to keep going. She was so close now, just a few feet away. Elaine crept on as the bandits stalked towards Katrin. 
You should never have come to this neck of the woods, church boy. The mighty Yenna's growl rolled across the floor like thunder. We don't need your kind here. Trying to leech the last fruit in the land for the sake of something that no longer exists. Fueling false hope into a dying people with promises of a prophecy and a savior. Elaine looked up at that, but when the mighty Yenna suddenly barked, she jumped as the whole cavern vibrated. You had no right to even come after us. You don't even deserve the fur on your back. Elaine's whole body was shaking, but she tiptoed the last couple of feet and reached the parcel. She grabbed it in her teeth, after trying to grab it with her hooves, which obviously didn't work, and glanced over at Katrin. Across the room, he rolled onto his back and sat up. Elaine's breath hitched at the sight of his bloodied cheek fur, but his teeth were bared and his eyes narrowed in blazing hatred. The church is no evil. Pokemon like you are everything that's wrong with this damned world. Savior, now! Elaine jumped out of her skin. What? What did he want her to do? But within a second she got her answer. Katrin's chest heaved, and a blast of water erupted from his mouth and sniped the Golbat out of the air. The torch in his foot extinguished in an instant, and blackness engulfed the cave like a leaping fog. The bandits cried out in surprise, and Katrin shouted, This way, Savior! from ahead. She could hear pounding footsteps, and she had no idea what was happening in the dark, but Elaine broke into a run. The parcel flying out behind her, she dodged around the spinning shapes of Pokemon and followed Katrin back through the tunnel. Elaine and Katrin's feet thundered against the slick rock. Right away she heard yelling and baying behind them. The tunnel was pitch black, but their pursuers' thundering paw steps and wing flaps were a deafening roar in Elaine's ears. Every step nearly sent her spinning to the floor, and keeping her hooves straight on the wet rock was near impossible. But finally, light, in a relative sense, appeared up ahead, and Elaine and Katrin burst from the mountain. Get back here, you snot-nosed punks! The mighty Yenna's booming bay erupted from the cave mouth. Elaine's heart clenched at the roar, but Katrin shouted, Keep running! And she managed to sprint after him down the mountainside. They dodged through outcrops of rock and scraggly mountain shrubs. Katrin wove through as elegantly as a basculin through water. Elaine managed to bump her nose on every branch. We need to get across the river. If we can get to Post Town... Stop right there! The thunderous roar split the sky above, and Elaine glanced back to see the mighty Yenna and its goons erupting from the cave and charging down the mountain after them. Golbat's fangs were bared, and Mistrevious's eyes glowed bright red in the night. Katrin shot back a glare and snarled in frustration. As soon as he and Elaine jumped down to flat ground, she followed him along the dirt road towards the river. They moved to cross the bridge, but... Stop! 
Katrin shouted just in time for Elaine to grind her hooves into the dirt and skid to a halt before she went flying into the water. The remains of a wooden bridge were still intact along each bank, but the structure had collapsed into the river. The old wooden planks were waterlogged flotsam, jutting up from the frothing white. They were trapped. Katrin's eyes blazed, and his fangs ground against each other. He stared at the river, his muscles pulsing, but with a glance at Elaine, he growled, Damn it! and spun around to face their attackers. Elaine wasn't particularly bright, but she didn't have to be valedictorian to put it together. Just swim across and go! I'll figure something else out! What are you, nuts? I can't abandon the savior! Katrin stood up on his haunches, grabbed the shell off his chest, and brandished it like a knife. Just get behind me! And Elaine, against her better conscience, did exactly that. The mighty Yenna and its goons were coming fast. Within seconds, they were down the mountain and pounding down the dirt road. I'll kill you for that little stunt! The mighty Yenna's roar shook the ground beneath them. Come and get some! Katrin roared back. His voice wasn't near as loud and higher pitched, but there was a deep anger in it that made it boom across the clearing. The mighty Yenna lunged through the air, and shell flashing in the faint starlight, Katrin sprang. They met in midair, and the fight exploded. Fur and specks of blood rained everywhere as Katrin and the mighty Yenna ripped and tore at each other. Even Golbat and Mistrivus stepped back to give birth to the flying claws. Elaine's chest tightened with terror. This didn't have one shred of the elegance seen in a normal Pokemon battle. In her world, Pokemon fought along their trainers to show off their prowess, wowed the crowd with awesome moves, put on beautiful displays of battle. But this wasn't battle. It was violence. All the pomp and prettiness went out the window as these Pokemon fought for the sole purpose of ripping each other apart. They rolled across the dirt road, Mighty Yenna clawing and biting, Katrin hacking away with his claws and shell. His chest heaved as he launched a water gun that knocked the Mighty Yenna off its feet, and Katrin leapt and hacked at the Mighty Yenna's belly with the sharpened blade of his shell. The Mighty Yenna squealed and smacked Katrin aside with a heavy paw. The Oshawa rolled through the dirt for only a second before jumping back to his feet and throwing himself at the Mighty Yenna's face. Katrin was nothing like the cute little Oshawats dancing their ways through battles back home. He was absolutely feral. He hissed and spat like an enraged animal, relentless in his attacks. He was little, but fought with the force of a hurricane. But as he clawed for the Mighty Yenna's eyes, the hound's entire body heaved in rage, and a bellow erupted from its throat. God damn it, enough! Katrin cried out as the Mighty Yenna body slammed him to the ground and pinned him down with two heavy paws. Katrin's shell skipped across the ground like a stone on a pond and fell into the brown grass on the other side of the road. 
Katrin hissed and tried to wriggle out, but the mighty Yenna pushed him into the ground and roared like a dragon. You're dead for this! Katrin! Elaine cried. The mighty Yenna ignored her, but Goldbat and Mistrevis spun around like they just remembered she existed. Apparently, they'd been as entranced by the fight as she'd been. Elaine knew she had to help Katrin. She had to do something. But the goons apparently knew what she was up to, for they circled in on her, eyes flashing. You ain't going anywhere, sweet cheeks, Golbat trilled. Shoulda known not to mess with us. Elaine took a hasty step back, and a spike of anxiety shot through her heart when her hoof nearly slipped against the rocky edge of the river. Look, can't we all just get along? We don't have to. Another cry of pain from Katrin cut her voice short, and she grit her teeth. She didn't have time for this. She had to move. Shouting. <coughs> Elaine barreled forward. She slammed through the goons, headbutting Golbat out of the sky when he tried to block her, and charged the mighty Anna. Blood racing and heart pulsing, she leapt. Slam! A snap of pain shot through her neck as she connected with the mighty Anna's flank. It yelped in surprise as the two of them bowled over onto the dirt. Within seconds, Katrin was on his feet. Elaine gasped at the sight of him. His fur was soaked in blood, and he was badly scratched up on his shoulders and back. But he didn't even seem to feel it. His whole body heaved with rage and the cute, fluffy Oshawott face twisted into something mean and hungry for blood. Elaine felt his fury with all the force of a lightning storm. Massive and oppressive and white-hot, ready to lash out, attack, and destroy. The mighty Yenna scrambled to its feet and crouched into an attack stance, fangs bared. Golbat and Mistrevis inched forward, and Elaine found herself frozen. The air crackled with tension. The Pokémon stared each other down, eyes raging, claws flashing, all ready to spring. That's quite enough now! Just like that, the tension dropped out of the sky like a weight. All the Pokemon swiveled around to see some sort of slimy water Pokemon. A Quagsire. That was a Quagsire, right? Emerging from the river. It was a foot taller than the mighty Yenna, with a good amount of pudge and muscle packed under slippery gray skin. Its eyes were small and hard as rocks. This road is the property of Post Town and its adjacent properties. Quagsire shambled into the middle of the ring on four legs, and then stood up on its webbed hind feet. It slapped the ground with its tail and narrowed its eyes further. It's ill-behaved of you all to be fighting like beasts so close to a town. Just who do you think you are? Elaine was stunned. All her logic told her that this quagsire was an idiot, 
stepping into the middle of a fight between two Pokémon that could kill it easy. But this Quagsire carried itself with all the grace and power of a Reshiram. Catrin and the mighty Yenna could turn on him, but Quagsire's demeanor denied the possibility. The other Pokémon seemed to feel the same. The twisted lines of rage in Catrin's face dropped away, leaving him looking surprised and kinda awkward. The mighty Yenna and its goons just looked confused. It didn't matter whether or not they could beat him. No one would try. Just who do you think you are, old man? The mighty Yenna's teeth were bared, but all the thunder was gone from its voice. Its eyes narrowed, like it was trying to figure out whether it was being pranked. I'm the groundskeeper of these parts. Or at least I like to think I am, Quagsire shrugged. Now, do you have business in Post Town, young Mon? The mighty Yenna was silent. No? I should hope there's not a reason for that. It's unbecoming of a young man such as yourself to have a poor reputation precede him. The mighty Yenna and its goons were all silent. An even mixture of confused, afraid, and confused as to why they were afraid. Quagsire waited a beat, then slapped his tail on the ground. Off with you, then! Get on! For a moment, the mighty Yenna and the goons were frozen in absolute shock. The mighty Yenna looked like it was debating whether to pounce the newcomer or if Quagsire had some hidden card up its sleeve. But then Mistrivis squeaked. This isn't worth it. Let's just go. And the three bandits ran off and dove into the dark woods. Quagsire huffed and brushed off his front flippers. Honestly, what poor company. He then looked at Katrin, and a frown tugged at his lips. And who are you two, then? More ne'er-do-wells I should be chasing off, hmm? Uh, actually... Katrin approached Quagsire on his hind legs, wincing just a bit with each step. I believe we may have spoken before. I sent a letter to the groundskeeper of Post Town about the available land... I'm with the Church of the Sun. Quagsire's eyes widened, and his face relaxed as something seemed to click. Ah, yes, Oshawott. I recall your letter quite well. You came from No Town, hmm? That's correct. Very well, very well. I won't chase you off. Though I must say... Your first impression pales in comparison to that of the well-kept church member I spoke to in letter. You look no different from those ruffians I chased off, all bloodied and battered. Katrin's only response was to blush and turn his face away. Quagsire then turned to Elaine, and she near jumped in surprise. With all the commotion, she'd felt invisible. And are you another member of the church, hmm, Tepig? Elaine tried to answer, but her words all tripped over each other. Uh, 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 um... She's with me, Katrin interrupted. We ran into each other in the woods. I'm assisting her. 
Quagsire stared at Elaine hard for a good moment, making her squirm. But then he turned away. Hmm, very well. Come with me, then. We'll need to get you patched up and cleaned, Oshawott. And then we can discuss business. Come along, then. I'll help you across the river, Tepig. Welcome to Post Town. Quagsire ambled towards the river. With a fleeting glance at Elaine, Katrin grabbed his shell out of the grass, stuck it back to his chest, and walked after the groundskeeper. For a second, Elaine hesitated. Images of the mighty Yenna and Katrin's face, bloodied and twisted with anger, kept flashing through her head. She glanced up at the sky, still black as a void. Wasn't it gonna be morning soon? But with a sigh, she grabbed the parcel off the ground in her teeth and followed Katrin and Quagsire towards the unknown. And that's the end of the episode. As always, we'd like to thank our three readers, Silverdough, Autoscarata, and Plain Yogurt, our editors CJ Apples and our project Head Flop, and the rest of the Writer's Lock team for their work making this project a reality. And another hearty thank you to Gamaliel for our theme music, C Made for arranging our jingles, and Nazimba for the wonderful cover art. Thank you all for listening. This has been The Writer's Lock. <laughs>